0: This is a News Laundry podcast and you're listening to Reporters Without Orders.
1: Order, order. Hello and welcome to another episode of Reporters Without Order, a podcast where we discuss what made news, what didn't, and some things that absolutely shouldn't have. Joining me today are two of my colleagues, Tanishka and Suplitin, who have been doing fantastic stories about things happening at home and abroad. Uh, Tanishka, in particular, has been following up on the Delhi violence, which broke out in February 2020, where 53 people died. And even though for some of us, it was just an event where a lot of people died uh, and which was followed, preceded by elections and followed by a pandemic, Sandishkar's story shows how for a lot of people affected by it, the violence was a cycle, a cycle that they still um, struggle to break out of. So we'll discuss that story with her and with Su Uh, we'll discuss the plight of Indian students in Ukraine. On February 24 last month, uh, Russia invaded Ukraine on the pretext of a special military operation. Thousands of Indian students stuck in Ukraine are now trying to get out, mainly through the Western borders of the country into Poland or Romania. And so Priti has spoken to a number of students there who've been trying to get home safely. Uh, In particular, uh, this 21-year-old student from a Ukrainian city of Venetia called Mohammed Afridi Shoe. And we speak to Supathi not just about uh, what uh, Afridi told her, but also as a reporter how she got even in touch with students living thousands of miles away, and probably get insights into how the profession works for those who are interested. Uh, so let's start with Tanishka. Tanishka, uh, you were in Northeast Delhi uh, on several days uh in the last last two weeks of february and you've documented stories of people who lost their cattle lost their jewelry their shops and homes so burnt down and even though they received some sort of a compensation by the delhi government your story says that that is not enough so let's start with the story of uh, muhammad irfan who's a resident of shiv bihar you met him and just tell us about how uh sometimes you know when we discuss any event and the compensation that is followed, even though it's publicized very openly in the media that the chief minister has announced this many lakhs to these many people who are affected. We don't really understand how that compensation might or might not help the victims. So tell us about Irfan and how the compensation that the Delhi government gave him did not meet its mark.
0: So Irfan was um, actually the first person I met when I went to North Delhi to meet these people. And uh, I think his case was, for me, at least the most um, heartbreaking story he had because um, soon after the violence, a year after that, he lost his wife as well. And um, the riots were also followed by COVID, right? Uh, multiple lockdowns. So uh, he received one lakh from the government, but all of that went almost in the next few months um, in COVID itself. He had to borrow a lot of money. Um, And uh, when the riots took place, not only was his shop completely destroyed, but also his home. And um, he has several photos in black and white and in colored. And, uh, you know, I think these are currently his most prized possessions because he feels like these photos will help him one day receive more compensation that he deserves. So that, um, you know, his whole shop was completely vandalized and burnt and not even one thing. He showed me the shelves. Not even one thing was left not one packet of chips, not one thing in the fridge, no rice, no grains. So to to think that rupees is one that can cover all of that. <clears throat> even for me, um, I don't have a lot of expertise in how his business in particular would work. It doesn't make a lot of sense. And so since then, his business has been very much affected. And so has his life because uh, it put him back several years, right? Because um, COVID happened, his wife died and currently his kids are not in school because he can't afford to pay for their education and uh, the school that there is that people in the area go to it's too far for him he's a single father and he can't really manage these things Um, he also said that it made a little difference to the people who came to his shop post the riots he said initially some people didn't come because um you know the communal tensions were still high The particular lane that he stays in, besides, um, I think there are around 8 to 10 uh, Muslims who stay there, besides that, it's all Hindus. So a little further down the line, uh, I think, Ayush, since you've been there, you might know how uh, these lanes work. Uh, Further down, where there's a masjid, there are a lot of Muslims, but over here, it's mostly Hindus and a few Muslims. So for the riots, it was um, not just financially, but I think even uh, the whole... Having your community support, that was also missing for him since uh, the whole thing took a It was a completely communal event.
1: And his shop is one of the 322 shops that we know, you know, according to the data we have, that were burnt down during the violence. And you've presented some numbers on the number of claims people made after the violence. And this was tabled in the Delhi Assembly by the Committee of, uh, for the Welfare of Minorities. Just give us the numbers of how many claims were made Uh, how many accepted, rejected, and how much did the Delhi government claim that it has paid in compensation to people affected?
0: Right, so there were um, 1,500 complaints made as of Jan 2021 for damage of uninsured commercial property, which includes shops such as Irfan's. Out of these, 1,176 were approved um, and 306 claims were rejected as the committee could apparently not assess the occurrence of damage. But this was more than a year ago. I spoke to someone from the committee who told me that um, the report has not been tabled since March 2021. So that's, it's a year now. So a lot of people who filed for, they thought that the compensation they received was not enough. Um, You can appeal uh, for them to reassess the compensation because the whole process to even get compensation, like Irfan, for example, after his house and shop was destroyed, he did not move anything. He let things be as it were, for at least a month until the police came to verify Um, because before the police comes to verify you have to fill a form, you have to register an FIR, you have to have photos to prove that this happened and based on the information you provide the police came and um, verified whether these things matched. So for a month he let things in his house remain as they were. Um, After the police verified he received rupees one lakh which he did not think was enough so uh, like Irfan a lot of people send appeals that this is not enough and hey, we need some more money to make up for the losses that we had to go through but it's been a year that the committee has not really looked into these claims because of multiple lockdowns and because of uh, the assembly elections and now the upcoming MCD elections in Delhi so it's been a year and uh, you know victims have just been trying to get justice and trying to get their compensation amount. And last year was also a year where we all were, and especially them, affected by COVID in multiple ways. Uh, And for them, financially, it took a big toll. Um, so all of that, despite the fact that they're not getting compensation and the committee is not even meeting to speak about these things. Uh, it was it was quite strange to know that, uh, you know, they're openly saying that, hey, we've not met or discussed this since a year now. So, like you said, they are stuck in a cycle that they can't move fast from. It's not just an event for them. And it's completely changed the course of their life.
1: And you spoke to Haji Yunus, who's the member of the Legislative Assembly from Mustafa constituency. You constituency. Know, that was one of the regions worst affected by the violence. Even in fact, I remember being there, meeting him two days after you know the riots, mm-hmm. with just uh, actually some say that by 27th of February, things had finished, even though people still died on that day. And he told you something very interesting, is that why, you know, even though the committee last met in March, 2021, right? If I'm right, yeah. uh, they haven't followed up since. And the reasons he gives you is, one is that there was a COVID wave first, then there was the assembly elections and then the upcoming MCA polls. Now, I, I'm not sure what assembly election he's talking about because Delhi went to election the month of the violence. Like 10 days before the violence broke out, we had the Army Party sweeping the state. So, where was this assembly election happening where he was so busy or his government was so busy, and the upcoming Delhi MCD polls, uh, which just short, sort of points us in a direction where our government, uh, even though they're elected to work for people, uh, seem to be suggesting from Haji unis's statement to you that because there were elections, I don't know which election, first of all, and there were MCD polls. The actual work of governance could not be carried out, which is bizarre, right?
0: Yeah, definitely. Uh, and the assembly elections he's talking about are the ones, uh, five states that just went into the last two months. But uh, like you said, it shows that their priorities um are not where they perhaps should be because at the time of the event, I think these are very event-based um, compensation, event-based sort of help that people get when something happens in the immediate aftermath, they receive help from government authorities, from, uh, you know, a lot of media attention from NGOs. But soon as the event starts to fade away, as the news cycle moves on, we all sort of, you know, forget about these instances. um, They were also telling me how NGOs also are not visiting this area as much as they used to before and initially they got a lot of help and now nobody really cares because there are so many other tragedies to focus on which I understand but for these people it's um, really not enough what they've got and they've not been able to move past. So there was this line of shops which were um, all destroyed uh, during the violence and they all have reopened, at least most of them have but uh, none of them are you know back to pre-riots um, business
1: yes let's come to another person whom you interviewed for your story and that's also another resident of shiv bihar ram Singh, Singh. and um, he was given a, a one lakh rupees compensation from the government and he had lost his kirana shop uh, to a mob um, when you spoke to him you know what was his story like because um, you know, we there's one uh, other person, Mohammed Akhtar, you've mentioned he had to take a loan of 70,000. I read that, like Akhtar, you know, Rambaran Singh had to also take a loan of 70,000 rupees. And um, it does not seem from what he told you that even though two and two years have gone by, that he's still back on his feet, that things have returned to normal. So, tell us about his story,
0: right? So, his was also a Kirana shop. Like you said, the money that he received from the government and the loans he took were not enough for him to get back to his feet. Because, you know, you wouldn't think, but in a, even in a small Kirana shop, there is everything that they buy is so expensive. He told me the prices of all the things. The counter, for example, which was completely burned during the violence, um, cost rupees 8,000. The oil tin cost rupees 2,500. The container cost rupees 1,000. And then there is all the groceries that you have to keep buying from bigger shops. So um, And also, it's not just the the riots, but also uh, COVID that came soon after, which anyway impacted everyone's businesses. And for shops which were closed for a while, their businesses were also impacted. So it was this double blow that they had to endure multiple times because the lockdowns kept coming. So he was telling me how usually he uh, buys uh, groceries and all the stuff for the shop from bigger shops. And usually before the riots and COVID, he was able to pay back the money. Um, in around 15 days but now it takes him double the time so things are really not back to before and uh, you know when I was talking to him over there I was standing by his shop and talking um, for at least half an hour and there were six to seven people who came to buy things and because we were talking about this they all added so it's still very fresh in people's minds you know it's still um, the the trauma and the violence that they all saw because they're all residents there and these are the people who have not uh left Shivvihara, a lot of people after the violence did leave the area and never come back. And a lot of people also during COVID, um, you know, went back to their villages, but the people who were still there, these things are still very fresh, you know, and they're not topics that um, they don't want to talk about at all. It's it's casual conversation for them, their trauma. So everyone kept adding on to um, a lot of things I obviously couldn't include in the report, but a lot of them were adding on everything that happened and how they haven't been able to recover. You know, the images and everyone had uh, this line about how they called the police several times and they didn't come. You know, across uh, Hindus, Muslims, uh, people with shops, uh, residents, women, and everyone said the same thing, that they called the police several times, but they did not come. And this is clearly something that they've still not been able to move past from.
1: Okay. Lastly, uh, you know, it's been two years since violence uh, swept the capital um when you went there and how many days did you i mean i'm just curious how many days did you set out in northeast Delhi, Anushka? was well, there was
0: three days i did two stories so that for three days okay
1: so what was your impression about the state of uh the communal situation there are things back to normal you know have people two people still have suspicions about you know hindus about muslims muslims about hindus um is there any hostility yet? Is there any suppressed fear and tension? What what did you make of that?
0: So when I first reached there, I was in the locality where a lot of Hindus stay, and I was um, wanting to meet someone, Irfan, who was a Muslim. So uh, a little girl, she must be like ten, when I uh, told her who I wanted to meet, she's like, oh, he's a Mohammedan, he wouldn't be staying here, and she pointed towards where he stays. So I think uh, it's very uh, for them, it's very clear um, who is a Hindu, who is a Muslim. But I'm not sure how much the um, effect still remains. Someone did tell me um, that they had to move houses after the violence to another locality of Shiv Vihar because in their complaint against other people who had uh, burnt their home and shop, they had mentioned a lot of Hindus who live around there. So they felt uncomfortable still living in that place. So they moved houses to a place where it's um, more of a Muslim majority. And um, something else I noticed was that the Hindu people I spoke to kept saying that it's people, the people who did the violence are people from outside. They are not people from inside. But um, the same sentiment was not shared by the Muslim people and the Muslim shopkeepers that I met. I am not sure if there's a larger picture to this, but that's what I saw. And one of the shopkeepers I spoke to who was Hindu um, sort of, when I asked him about whether the communal tensions still stay and everything, he just pointed to the shop opposite him where uh, there was a Muslim shopkeeper and he said that clearly not, you know, we've been uh, across each other for years now and if there really were tensions, we would not be able to go about our business so easily. So I think everyone's taken different things from what happened two years ago. But yeah.
1: Okay, thank you so much, Tanishka, for your story. Uh, Our listeners who would like to read Tanishka's stories, and I suggest they do. It's titled, Heavy Debt, Low Compensation, Two Years After Delhi riots, Damaged Businesses Struggle to Move On. Uh, Tanishka, in fact, did another story uh, from Northeast Delhi. It's titled, For Children Impacted by Delhi Riots, A School to Help Them with Trauma. And uh, even though we couldn't talk about this story today, it's a video story, uh, very visual. So you can go to our website or to our YouTube channel and check it out. So that was Tanishka. Uh, let's move on to Supritti, who has been for the last week News Laundry's Ukraine correspondent, although she's been based out very much in the safe havens of New Delhi. Supritti has done five stories on the situation faced by Indian students in Ukraine. Um, the thousands of them trying to get out, as I said in my introduction. Uh, in fact, yesterday we had the government of India confirmed that one student, Indian student from Karnataka, died after the Russians uh, shared the city of Kharkiv. And Supri, so uh, we'll come to your story about, um, you know, uh, Mohammad Afridi Shoaib. But first tell us, you are in Delhi. These students are in Ukraine. How did you, you know, for the five stories you did, manage to get in touch with students who are living so far away? So tell us about what went into trying to just reach out to these students.
2: So, uh, how I'd initially come like thought of doing this story was i uh, we have this daily podcast that we do daily dose, right. So uh, this uh, the developing situation in uh, Ukraine was one of the updates that I had uh, that I was going to add to the script. And uh, I saw the first advisory that had been released on uh, February fifteenth. And uh, just out of curiosity, I looked at the comment section of that uh, tweet. And um, I saw that there were a lot of students, um, medical students who were commenting saying that uh, they were not being able to find flights, uh, that they were disappointed in the delayed uh, advisory that the embassy had released and that uh, there was no time essentially to leave Ukraine. So uh, I went. Um, I DM'd uh, a lot of these students, and uh, some of them responded. And then through them, uh, you know, uh, I connected with a lot more students. So it was essentially that, like, I found them on social media. Twitter has been the most. Um, you know, useful tool in this sense, because like you said, I'm sitting here in Delhi and I've spoken to like almost 20 students uh, till now, like up, like across, like over the course of five stories and um, social media has really proved to be, you know, that bridging, uh, that bridge between um, countries and um, yeah, it wouldn't have been without Twitter.
1: Right. Um, Interesting. And, you know, so I think uh, the journalists of, Four, five decades ago their ghosts will be really envious of us how we can use internet to just easily connect with people so far away and you know even in these tense times um because things look so bleak uh, right now in europe you have countries that do superpowers threatening the use of nuclear weapons and in the middle of all that you know as if that wasn't too much stressful we have indian students Stuck in Ukraine. One of them being Mohammed Afidi Shoe, who you spoke to. He's a student at the National Pyrogov Memorial Medical University in Venetia in Ukraine. And he crossed over to Romania. Um, when you spoke to him, he was on his way to the Bucharest Airport, which is the capital of the country, and um, was at the portal at some zero temperatures for seven hours and yet he considered himself lucky. So first tell us about what his story is, how he managed to get into Romania, and then we'll talk about why after all that plight he thinks that he's lucky.
2: So the first time uh, I'd spoken to uh, Afridi was on on February 24th, which was when uh, the situation actually in Ukraine really got uh, you know serious and like really escalated um and i remember him telling me at that point that uh, he wasn't panicking because he believed that uh, even though the situation was escalating his country would save him is what he told me now uh, so he was in his apartment um the basement of his hostel was what was being used as a bunker because the bunkers near him were full so that was where he was staying and um The next time I spoke to him was a couple of days later on February 25th, I think, and uh, he said he told me that, uh, you know, he was getting very uh, frustrated because the Indian Embassy, firstly, uh, most of the numbers that the, um, you know, embassy had put out as hotlines for Indian students in Ukraine were not uh, being answered. Or were not like reachable at all, and uh, the, there are student contractors there who are in touch with uh, the M- Indian embassy officials. Uh, student contractors are basically locals in the area who are responsible for like a number of Indian students. So they were telling this to like the three hundred and fifty students that were in his apartment. Um, complex, that, uh, you know, to just wait, that uh, there were, you know, um, they were figuring out how to get them out, but to wait. But Afridi knew that the situation, there needed to be, you know, immediate action taken. And he uh, he gave them an ultimatum on uh, February 25th. He told them that, uh, you know, tell me what, give me in uh, clear terms what, uh, you know, the plan of our evacuation is. If you don't, he asked the uh, you know student contractor and the embassy about uh, giving him a clear um, plan of the evacuation, and if they couldn't, then he would take matters into his own hands. They weren't able to, and uh, they um, arranged buses for themselves, they went out into the city at 4 a.m. in the morning and they arranged buses. They stopped each bus, like Ukrainian bus driver, and they begged them uh, to take these students to the Polish uh, sorry, to the Romanian border. And finally, they were able to get six buses and two mini buses. And the 350 students, they journeyed from uh, Venezia to the Romanian border. At the border, he, like I wrote, he described the situation as like, a battlefield is what he called it. There was there was only three um, like um, gates through which uh, people could cross over. and There were huge crowds, over like hundreds and hundreds of uh, people, just students, nationals, uh, like uh, Ukrainian nationals, other international students, just waiting to you know get across and get to safety. And there were students who were hanging on to buses as like, you know, trucks who were crossing over, who were jump trying to jump over, like, you know, the border because it was taking so long, sub-zero temperatures, as you said. So, uh, it was a complete, like, there was complete chaos and uh, Afidi knew that his best chance at getting across was you know, by, uh, you know, organizing themselves in some way. So they formed this line and they essentially begged the Ukrainian uh, soldiers to uh, let them through. And uh, after he got, that took seven hours just like getting across. And after that, there's an additional six hours to finish immigration. So it was a really long um, time that he spent out in the cold in six layers of clothes like clothing as he said and he was still so cold and i remember him sending me a message that uh, i've crossed i've crossed the border and uh, i wanted to call him immediately and he said i can't tra- talk right now my uh, my fingers are freezing i will call you later so uh, when i spoke to him later he was on his way to the airport like he said and um, that's how he told me about this its
1: own story. Yeah. And you know, the the Indian government has come under a uh, lot of criticism because of how it has managed the evacuation of Indian students or any Indian from Ukraine. And just to, just to give our listeners some numbers, according to the BBC, there are at least 20,000 students from India studying in Ukraine. Um, on January 25th, The first time the Indian mission in Ukraine puts out a form asking citizens to fill up, but it did not mention anything about evacuation. And this is the time, uh, two days before this form had been sent, countries like the U.S. and the U.K. were putting out advisories uh, telling their citizens to not travel to Ukraine because of the, you know, how the situation was unfolding. On the February 11th and February 12th. Most countries like uh, the Baltic countries, Estonia, Latvia, uh, Norway, US and the UK uh, separately also put out advisories and they ask their citizens to leave. India does the same three days later and three days is a lot of time when you have a war at hand, right, 72 hours. And yet the foreign secretary tells the BBC that a lot of advance notice was given. So we have a lot of reasons to go after our government of how it has uh, managed to secure its citizens, but then afridi tells you that when he crossed over to Romania, he was treated, uh, you know, very well by the Indian embassy there, and he was, from what he's told you, he seemed very grateful. He was given food, and uh, even Romanians, he said, opened, uh, you know, welcomed him with open arms. So tell us about how, you know, after all the Uh, suffering he went through. Um, You know, it was a good climax that things unfolded well for him. To talk about that, please.
2: So, uh, there's this huge, uh, you know, uh, thing happening right now about how the Indian uh, evacuation program is the most active in the world. There's, uh, you know, headlines all across like media yesterday. Um, My uh, issue with that is, like, Afidi had to make to get to the border he like all the students like his seniors and like other students also whoever like most of them were making it to the three uh border countries they're making their own arrangements they're paying three lakhs per bus to get to these borders now um what happens is and they're risking their like, like, they they're petrified about coming like you know coming out in the streets making that journey to these border countries but they're doing it they're doing it they're taking that risk upon themselves and they're reaching there. at the border also there are no Indian officials that are there just like to make that clear. Uh, the Indian officials, the first uh, like you know officials from the Indian embassy are like you only meet the first officials from the Indian embassy after you finish immigration which is in these countries. So there's no help at the immigration point. There's no help at the border to make, you know, um, to, um, what is it called? Uh, To make things systematic there. And there is no one at the railway stations or the bus stops that the Indian embassy is telling students to go to. There's chaos at all points within Ukraine, but the students are still somehow managing to reach the borders. To say that, we have the most active evacuation, um, program in place. I find that very, like, um, very weird because what does, what are you calling an evacuation? These students are evacuating themselves out of a war-torn country. They're reaching these countries and then you're bringing them home, which is your responsibility as the, like, you have to get them home from those countries. But the gov, what the government I think should be doing is making arrangements for these students within Ukraine. Like the uh, the students are running around around Ukraine, getting their own contacts for buses, for uh, you know trying to trying their best to get onto trains. So like you know um, help them out in those logistics. You no, know? get them out. Like help them in that evacuation the students in sumi who i've spoken to uh, uh, like recently they 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 are 2000 kilometers away from the any of the borders they're on the like you know the eastern side they're 50 kilometers away from russia's border and uh initially they were told you know you guys um come how how are they gonna come they like Uh, the situation was escalating there for like a while and they couldn't get out and uh, to expect them to risk risk their lives with no assurance that when they get to finally get to the border that they would be, you know, given safe passage immediately or like um, in a few hours, that's asking an extreme, like it's asking so much. So I have a huge uh, issue with this, uh, as I'm sure many other people with this uh, most active evacuation program that they've uh, you know decided to call themselves
1: yeah and you know i agree with you and i think the whole um the way the especially the external affairs ministry has managed evacuation is highly incompetent and the fact that they are afraid to put their names to claims like their program has been the most efficient You know, the fact that it has to be anonymous sources and you can't put someone's name to it tells us a lot about the way information is being manipulated and being played around with. Mm -hmm. Um, Thank you so much, Supriti, for joining us and talking to us about your report. I'll just read out the headline headline of your report for those of our listeners who'd like to read it immediately. It's titled, From Valencia to Bucharest, An Indian Student's Journey Out of a War Zone. This is a story we discussed. Uh, Alternatively, I also suggest that uh, our listeners read another report by Supriti, which is titled, Ran through the forest as explosions roared, kept kitchen knives. Indians in Ukraine bunkers. Uh, This came out two days before uh, the last report that I mentioned. Uh, Supriti, you've done five. So would you, out of the remaining three, would you recommend uh, all three or (laughs) any one of uh, those to our listeners?
2: Um, I would recommend reading the first one actually uh, the first one I'd done on February 17th after the first two circular advisories had been issued just for like listeners to have some context as to how from February like from like you know then which is like over 10, 10 days ago um students have been saying that the advisories were delayed and that they were disappointed and that it was like too late for them. And um, just to see how the situation has unfolded since then, I'd recommend that. It's titled Disappointed, Embassy Advisories Delayed, Indian Students Stuck in Ukraine.
1: Okay. And do you have any other recommendations besides that?
2: Yeah, so there's this uh, New Yorker piece, uh, which is published on 28th February. It's by uh, David uh, Remnick. Um, it's titled, How Russia's Nobel-winning newspaper is Covering Ukraine. And I think uh, it's, a, um, it's an interview sort of thing uh, with this, uh, the editor of this newspaper uh, in um, Russia called uh, Novaya Gazeta. And uh, it's very, like, Russia has given very explicit orders as to how media in Russia should be covering this conflict. They can't use the word war and uh, stuff like that. So it's very, and they are continuing to defy, uh, you know, that. And they're waiting for, you know, uh, the consequences of that. So
0: it's a very interesting uh, conversation.
1: Okay. So, Tanishka, what are your recommendations for our listeners?
0: Uh, I'd like to recommend this piece on News Minute by Prajwal Bhatt. It's called Hate Speeches and Hindutva Heroes The Making of a Saffron Shawl Protester. So, last two months, the whole hijab row that really escalated in Karnataka. This is a really good piece that traces um, the people who started showing up wearing the saffron shawls, how it started, who are these people, um, and these young teenagers, you know. So, it's very interesting to read about how they sort of um, got really into the whole. Uh, protest or movement as they would call it and um, how this really escalated to where it is so I'd recommend this piece.
1: My recommendations before I finish the show is a piece in the BBC since you were talking about Indian students uh, stuck in Ukraine it's titled Ukraine crisis black and Indian students alleged discrimination for border it's by Stephanie Hegarty and Poonam Taneja for the BBC World Service published on 28th of February. And it it gives us the story of this uh, sort of a war within the war where, of course, we have a larger conflict at play in Europe, but for many students who uh, are not from the global north but come from the global south, uh, it's also a war of uh, being judged for their identities and alleging that the way a Caucasian white male is being treated by the border authorities and by soldiers is not the same treatment that they have been getting. And that's disturbing. So do check out this report. So uh, there you go, dear listeners. Uh, We heard about Tanishka's report, we heard about Suprati's report. And to bring you work like this requires not just time and hard work, but also resources. So to help us continue our work, please do consider subscribing to News Laundry. Because, as many of you are aware, NewsZondry is a 100% ad-free news platform. This is because we believe that in order to bring you ground realities, we cannot depend on advertisers or sponsors who might have vested interests. We solely count on folks like you who understand why it is important to keep news away from the clutches of advertisers. So please support us in our endeavor to bring you free and fair news. Go to our website, click on the red subscribe button on the top right-hand corner and pay to keep news free. And if you keep doing that, perhaps we can scale up. And next time, we can not just to Kiev, but probably also to Moscow, make her learn Russian and, uh, you know, turn her into the 21st century equivalent of Ernest Hemingway. (laughs) Um, And also for our listeners who might be listening to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or uh, Stitcher, we have a website, as I mentioned, newslaundry.com. You can head over to the website and check out the other cool stuff that we do besides podcasts like interviews, ground reportage. We have a morning show where our editors have been covering elections uh, on a daily basis and getting very interesting views from the ground. So do head over to newsonly.com to check all that out. Uh, That's all we have for this episode. We'll see you next time. With that, this podcast is adjourned.